Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We have two stories for you today. The first being Orpheus and Eurydice, a love story for the ages. And the second, Proteus, a retelling adapted by Elizabeth Harrison. And now, Orpheus and Eurydice, retold by V.C. Turnbull. In Greek mythology, Orpheus was said to be the son of Calliope, the muse of epic song. He was the most ancient of poets, living long before Homer. The story of his devotion to his wife, Eurydice, is one of the most famous of the classic myths. Never was there a musician like Orpheus, who sang songs inspired by the muses to a lyra that was given to him by Apollo. So mighty indeed was the magic of his music that nature herself owned his sway. Not only did rocks and rills repeat his lays, but the very trees uprooted themselves to follow in his train, and the savage beasts of the forest were tamed and fawned upon him as he played and sang. But of all who hearkened enchanted to those matchless strains, none drew deeper delight than the singer's newly-wed wife, the young and lovely Eurydice. Hour by hour she sat at his feet, hearkening to the music of his voice and lyra, and the gods themselves might have envied the happy pair. And surely some god did look with envious eye upon those two, for on an evil day Eurydice, strolling with her maidens through a flowery meadow, was bitten on her foot by a viper, and perished in all her beauty ere the sun went down. Then Orpheus, terrible in his anguish, swore that death itself should not forever rob him of his love. His song, which could tame wild beasts and drag the ancient trees from their roots, should quell the powers of hell and snatch back Eurydice from their grasp. Thus he swore, calling on the gods to help him, and taking his lyra in his hand, he set forth on that fearful pilgrimage from which no man, unless, like Hercules, he was a hero, half man and half god, had returned alive. And now he reaches the downward path, the end whereof is lost in gloom. Deeper and deeper he descended, till the light of day was quite shut out, and with it all the sounds of the pleasant earth. Downward through the silence as of the grave, downward through darkness deeper than that of any earthly night, then out of the darkness, faint at first, but louder as he went on, came sounds that chilled his blood, shrieks and groans of more than mortal anguish, and the terrible voices of the Furies, speaking words that cannot be uttered in any human tongue. When Orpheus heard these things, his knees shook and his feet paused as if rooted to the ground. But remembering once more his love and all his grief, he struck his lyra and sang, till his dirge, reverberating like a funeral march, drowned all the sounds of hell, and Charon, the old ferryman, subdued by the melody, ferried him over the ninefold sticks which none save the dead might cross. When Orpheus reached the other side, great companies of pale ghosts flocked round him on that drear shore, for the singer was no shadowy ghost like themselves, but a mortal, beautiful, though woe begone, and his song spoke to them as with a thousand voices of the sunlight and the familiar earth, and of those who were left behind, in their well-loved homes. But Orpheus, not finding Eurydice among these, made no tarrying over the flaming flood of Phlegathon, through the cloud-hung and adamantine portals of Tartarus. Here Pluto, lord of the underworld, sits enthroned, and round him sinners do penance for the evil that they wrought upon earth. There Ixion, murderer of his father-in-law, is racked upon the ever-turning wheel, 
and Tantalus, who slew his son, endures eternal hunger in sight of food and eternal fear from the stone ever ready to fall. There the daughters of Danius seize not to pour water into bottomless urns. There Sisyphus, who broke faith with the gods when they permitted him to return a little while to the upper world, evermore rolls up a steep hill a great stone that, falling back from the summit, crushes the wretch in its downward rush. But now a great marvel was seen in hell, for as Orpheus entered singing his melodies, the first that had ever sounded in that dread abode, caused all its terrors for a moment to cease. Tantalus caught no more at the fruits that slipped through his fingers. Ixion's wheel ceased to turn. The daughters of Danius paused at their urns, and Sisyphus rested on his rock. The very furies themselves ceased to scourge their victims, and the snakes that mingled with their locks hung down, forgetting to hiss. So came Orpheus to the throne of great Pluto, by whose side sat Proserpina, his queen. And the king of the infernal gods asked, What wouldest thou, mortal, who darest to enter unbidden this our realm of death? Orpheus answered, touching his lyre the while, Not as a spy or a foe have I come where no living wight hath ventured before, but I seek my wife, slain untimely by the fangs of a serpent. Such love as mine for a maiden such as she must melt the stoniest heart. Thy heart is not all of stone, and thou too didst once love an earthly maiden. By these places filled with horrors, and by the silence of these boundless realms, I entreat thee, restore Eurydice to life. He paused, and all Tartarus waited with him for a reply. The terrible eyes of Pluto were cast down, and to Proserpina came a memory of the far-off days when she too was a maid upon earth sporting in the flowery meads of Enna. Then Orpheus struck again his magic strings and sang, To thee we all belong, to thee sooner or late we all must come. It is but for a little space that I crave my Eurydice. Nay, without her I will not return. Grant, therefore, my prayer, O Pluto, or slay me here and now. Then Pluto raised his head and spoke. Bring hither Eurydice. And Eurydice, still pale and limping from her mortal wound, was brought from among the shades of the newly dead. And Pluto said, Take back, Orpheus, thy wife Eurydice, and lead her to the upper world again. But go thou before, and leave her to follow after. Look not once back, till thou hast passed my borders, and canst see the sun. For in the moment when thou turnest thy head, thy wife is lost to thee again, and forever. Then with great joy Orpheus turned and led Eurydice away. They left behind the tortured dead and the gibbering ghosts. They crossed the flaming Plegathon, and Charon rode them once more over the ninefold sticks, and up the dark path they went, the cries of Tartarus sounding ever fainter in their ears. And at last the light of the sun shone faint and far where the path returned to earth, and as they pressed forward the song of the little birds made answer to the lyra of Orpheus. But the cup of happiness was dashed from the lips that touched its brim, for even as they stood upon the uttermost verge of the dark place, the light of the sun just dawning upon their faces and their feet within a pace of earthly soil, Eurydice stumbled and cried out in pain. Without a thought, Orpheus turned to see what ailed her, and in that moment she was caught from him. Far down the path he saw her, a ghost once more, fading from his sight like smoke as her faint form was lost in the gloom. Only for a moment could he see her white arms stretched toward him in vain. Only once could he hear her last heartbroken farewell. 
Down the path rushed Orpheus, clamoring for his Eurydice, lost a second time. But vain was all his grief, for not again would Charon row him across the Styx. So the singer returned to earth, his heart broken, and all joy gone from his life. Thenceforth his one consolation was to sit upon Mount Rhodope, singing his love and his loss. Thus ends the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. And the second, a story called Proteus, which is a tale taken from the Odyssey and takes place on the island of Pharos near Egypt. And now the story of Proteus, adapted from a retelling by Elizabeth Harrison. It's a great story to remember when someone tells you to hold on. Menelaus was the king of Sparta and one of the leaders of the Greeks in the Trojan War. And now our story. After the long and cruel Trojan War was over, King Menelaus started in his good ship for his much-loved home in Sparta. His crew hoisted the sails, and they began the long voyage across the dark, mysterious sea. For a while the wind was favorable and helped them along their journey. Then one evening they stopped for the night in a sheltered bay on the coast of a little island. The next morning they woke to find the wind blowing steadily in the opposite way from the one they wished to sail. They waited all day, hoping the strong breeze would die down, or at least change its direction. The next day passed, and the next, and another, and still the wind blew steadily away from their beloved homes. Although it was invisible, it had more strength than all of them, and they could make no headway against it. Day after day it blew a fierce, wild gale over their heads, scattering the clouds across the sky, dashing the waves against the shore, whirling the dust into their faces, and hurriedly uttering hoarse, whispering sounds as it passed them. They knew it was warning them against daring to continue their homeward journey. Twenty days had come and gone, and still the wind kept up its fierce, loud tone of command as it rushed from the faraway west, shook the waters of the vast ocean, swept over the small rocky island, and sped on toward the east. The courage of the poor sailors was almost exhausted. Their provisions were giving out. They tried to catch fish to satisfy each day's hunger, but it was hard when the surf was so wild. Menelaus, their chief, went wandering alone on the seashore. He was very unhappy, for he feared that all this trouble had come because he and his comrades had done something to displease the gods. So he was much distressed in mind as he walked along the sandy beach. The sun was sinking to rest. The evening shadows were settling down between the rocky hills. The darkness of night was approaching. When suddenly there stood before him a beautiful being of so dazzling an appearance that he knew she could not be a woman. She must be an immortal. Her saffron robes gleamed with light as do the sunset clouds. Her face was as radiant as are the last rays of the departing sun. It was the beautiful goddess Idathea. Her face suddenly became stern as she looked at King Menelaus and asked him why he tarried idly upon the small rocky island. He replied that he did not willingly remain, but that he must surely have sinned against the gods as they had sent a strong, fierce wind to hinder his homeward voyage. Then he earnestly begged her to tell him what to do. The stern look left her face as she heard him confess that he had done wrong. She came nearer to him, and her glittering robes changed from saffron to pink and blue, and even gray, and the lights played above, around, and about her, in the most wonderful fashion, 
changing each moment as she spoke. She told him that she was the daughter of Proteus, the Ancient of the Deep, who, living for thousands and thousands of years in the bottom of the great ocean, had gone wherever the restless waves of the sea had gone, and had learned the secrets of both land and water. He knew the song of the winds, and could interpret every message they brought from the gods. Therefore he, and he alone, could tell Menelaus what it was that the strong, fierce wind had been crying out to him and his companions for the past twenty days. This sea-god, Proteus, was a most remarkable being. He had the power to change himself into whatever form he chose. The only way to get any secret from him was to catch him when he was asleep, and then to hold on to him, no matter what shape he might choose to take, until at last he returned to his original form of the old man of the sea. Idathea told Menelaus that this strange father of hers would rise out of the sea at about noon the next day, and would walk over to a large cavern not far distant, where his sea calves took their daily sleep, and that when he had counted them to see if they were all there, he would lie down in the midst of them and go to sleep also. This, said she, would be the time for Menelaus and three of his trusted sailors to spring upon him and seize him firmly, and she added that they must hold on to him, no matter what happened, until he changed back into his own form, that of an old man. Then they could ask him any questions they wished, and he would be compelled to answer them. Having given Menelaus these instructions, the beautiful goddess suddenly plunged into the ocean, and the green waves closed over her. With bowed head and mind filled with anxious thought, Menelaus returned to his men. They gathered round their boats on the seashore and ate their scanty evening meal. Silently and solemnly the night settled down upon the landscape and made the trees look like dark, shadowy forms, and the outlines of the hills grew dim, and the ocean was covered by the hush of the darkness, and silence reigned over all. The sailors threw themselves down upon the sand and were soon fast asleep. Menelaus lay beside them, but his mind was troubled. What would the next day bring forth? He was to meet the strange and terrible Ancient of the Deep, and was to struggle fiercely with him. Would he be able to cope with the monster? Would he have the courage to hold on to him? What awful and unknown shapes might not the creature take? The night slowly wore away, and when the faint purplish light softened the eastern sky, he arose, and going apart from his sleeping comrades, he knelt down and prayed earnestly to the ever-living gods. Then, returning to his men, he awoke the three whom he could trust the most, and taking them with him, sought the spot where the goddess Idathea had promised to meet him. She, radiant as the dawn, was already there awaiting him. Quickly digging four oblong holes in the wet sand, she commanded Menelaus and his three companions to lie down in them. This they did, and she skillfully spread over each of them a seal-skin. Then the radiant goddess seated herself on a rock not far away, to await her father's coming. After a while, the sea-calves rose from the depths of the ocean and began crawling along the sand. They came in throngs, and had themselves down in rows upon the sandy shore beside the brave but anxious heroes. Soon the sunlit waves parted from right to left, and slowly and solemnly Proteus, the Ancient of the Deep, appeared. His hair and beard and garments were covered with white foam. He walked over to where his sea-calves lay basking in the sun and counted them. 
This was a trying time for Menelaus. His heart beat loud and fast. So great was his fear that he and his companions might be discovered. But the goddess had done her work too well for that. Proteus did not notice any difference between them and the beasts which lay about them. Having finished his task, he stretched his body upon the sand beside his flock, ready for his afternoon nap. Now was the critical moment. Menelaus and his men, throwing off the sealskins, sprang forward with loud shouts, and before the old sea-god knew it, they had fast hold of his arms and legs. Proteus, having the power to change his body into whatever shape he pleased, suddenly transformed himself into a roaring lion, so fierce and strong that it seemed as if he might crush anything that came in his way. Still Menelaus and his stout-hearted men held on. Then, in an instant, the lion became a fiery panther whose glaring eyes struck terror into their hearts. But still they held on. In a moment more, a large snake was twisting and writhing in their hands, hissing and darting his forked tongue out as if he would gladly poison all of them. But still they held on. Shape after shape the monster assumed, but still they held on. Now it was a clear, harmless stream of water flowing gently through their hands. Again it was a flame of fire darting here and there, threatening to scorch their faces and even to burn out their eyes. Yet they held on. Then it became a beautiful tree, tall and stately, with broad, spreading branches and shining green leaves, and still they held on. At last, finding that his enchantments were of no avail, he changed back into his real form, and, turning to Menelaus, he said, "'What wouldst thou have?' Menelaus begged him to tell why he and his faithful sailors were kept from crossing the dark waters of the sea to their distant homes. Then Proteus, the Ancient of the Deep, who knew all the secrets of both gods and men, told him the cause of their troubles. In their impatience to get back to their homes, they had neglected to worship the gods and asked them for guidance to their journey's end. It was their own thoughtlessness that kept them prisoner. It was their own thoughtlessness that had kept them prisoner. Menelaus now understood what the wind had been trying to tell him. The very next day, he and his men paid due worship to the gods. Then right merrily the wind whistled and sang about their ears as it filled their white sails and helped them to speed across the blue water. In a few days they had reached their beloved homeland. But never to the end of their lives did they forget the terrible struggle with the mighty Proteus, ancient of the deep, where by holding on they had won the silent battle. And oft times they told their story to their children and grandchildren, just as I am telling it to you today. Never forget the story of Proteus, and remember to have the strength and will to hold on during hard times. If you enjoy the wide range of stories that we bring you at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, please do take a moment and send us a kind review, especially you Apple listeners, which I think is the last place that you can leave reviews. Also, please share our story with others. I wish all of you the best, and a very happy holidays as well. Until our next story, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.